John 20, verses 24 to 31. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in my hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. My name is Justin Henry. I'm a pastoral fellow here at Christ City Church. Uh, what that means is I'm spending time here at CCC learning and serving. I'm spending uh, my time here loving all of you in lots of small ways uh, and experiencing your love in many small ways. I've been truly blessed and honored by the opportunity that Matthew and Justin have given me and that so many of you have made possible for me to be here as a fellow. We're in a series on the battles that we face every day. Every day battles. Last week, Lisa preached on disappointment. Uh, and this week, you and I are gonna talk a little bit about doubt. I wanted to play that song by King's Kaleidoscope because the questions asked there are so familiar to me. Will I fall or will I misstep? Will I call you with my last breath? Will you be there for me after? Will I waste inside the silence where the fear is vicious and violent? Jesus, where are you? Am I still beside you? I'm nervous about this sermon this morning because uh, it's real to me. Um, and I don't feel qualified to preach on it because I lose the battle with doubt probably more often than I win it. It's a constant wrestling match and it usually feels like I'm on the weaker end of things. I've cried myself to sleep feeling alone and scared and desperate. Maybe you've had nights like that too. Even worse were the nights when neither tears nor sleep would come. I longed to even feel the ache of aloneness. I wanted to miss God because then I could at least pray or cry or something. I suspect that you too may have found yourself numb at moments. I've been angry with God. I've pointed an accusing finger at God. I've blamed God. I've begged God to show up and to be different and to change things, to change me, to take my sin away, to make me into the person that I want to be and that I think God wants me to be. But I've found over and over and over again that to be beyond my own reach. And I'll hear a preacher say, or I'll reach the book and it'll say, let God do it. Let God's strength do it. God will do it. It's impossible for you, but God will do it. And so I turn 
my face to God and I say, so do it. What are you waiting for? Why are you leaving me like this? So much of my doubt has come from my own dissatisfaction with myself or my circumstances. My doubt has grown out of disappointments, disappointment in the world or in others, but mostly and most intensely with myself. My doubt looks backwards at the past and the resulting pain and heartache, and it says, see, God must not be who you think God is. My doubt takes a look at me and says, see, God can't have actually meant what you think God meant. That's the kind of doubt that I want to talk about this morning. I struggled for a while how to decide how to approach this battle. I didn't want to come up and talk about something so messy and make it sound straightforward. I didn't want to come up here and dishonor my own experiences or your experiences. Doubt hurts. I don't want to just shrug and say it's part of life. And I don't want to say, follow these steps and you'll make it out of doubt into certainty. That certainty, it can become an idol. The search for the comfort and security of certainty can become an idol. And since you could always be more certain, that search also will never end. So in that way, doubt can be a gift. It keeps us from the idol of certainty. It calls us out on our idolatry and it can refocus us on the things that matter, but we can swing way too far and allow doubt to lie to us. Like certainty, doubt can be an idol. Doubt can tell us to be afraid that God isn't who God says he is. Doubt can tell us that we're alone in our doubt and that we aren't who God says we are. Doubt can tell us that our uncertainty and our questioning the very gift that keeps us from the idol of our own certainty separates us from God and that we need to somehow work up the willpower to believe more in order to bring ourselves back into communion with God. So here's a little bit of what I want to do today. Today I have three doubters that I'd like to talk about and three truths. So I'm going to pray briefly and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you uh, for the stories in this room. Thank you for the way that you've been there in all of them. God, I pray that this morning um, you're going to speak and that you're going to show up in those stories as we remember them. In Jesus' name. Okay. Um, last week we started with disappointment, and I said earlier that disappointment can act as soil for seeds of doubt to be planted in. What's important is this, we sometimes doubt because our hopes have been proved wrong in the past and we've been let down. And so we avoid getting our hopes up again. Um, I do this when I go to the movies. Uh, I don't know if that's a common practice for you all. I tell people, man, this movie's gonna be terrible. And then when I see it, I can enjoy the movie because I'm not hoping for it to be any good at all. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes I end up doing this with friends, too. I stop expecting them to show up for me in certain ways. I stop believing uh, in them at all. So some, you know, sometimes we get our hopes up so big. Our expectations get so high. And in those moments, a future reality that has not yet come to pass becomes our present. 
Maybe it's a relationship that you both see lasting forever. Or a dream job that this degree that you're studying for uh, is, is for, the f for in the future. Maybe that dream job is, is your current reality in your mind. When the future reality is affecting your present, if you lose that future, the loss of that future, it's incredibly painful. And I know I don't need to tell you that. I know you know. There's a story in the Bible. It's the story of our, the first of our three doubters. And I think it describes a moment like this really well. I think that we sometimes present the Apostle Thomas, Thomas the twin, we sometimes present him as like a scientist. He's like too involved or obsessed with evidence. He refused to believe because he needed to test the other disciples' claim empirically using science according to the evidence. He needed empirical proof before he would believe them. But I don't know if that's quite what's going on in this story, so let me set it up for us. Before this episode with Thomas and Jesus, Mary had seen the empty tomb, and she ran to the disciples. And then Peter and John like, ran to the tomb. They left her in the dust. She couldn't keep up with them. Um, Peter and John, they see the empty tomb, and they're awestruck. And they go back to the disciples, and they leave Mary, again, crying outside the tomb. Uh, I think this might, Jesus might have thought this was kind of rude to Peter, uh, Peter and John, because then he shows up, and he's like, Mary, why are you crying? <laughs> what, what's, what, are you, what are you looking for? And, so, and she's at an emotional 100, and so she turns to this person that she doesn't recognize at first, and she's like, where'd you take him? Ah! And then all Jesus says is, Mary. He just says her name, and then she recognizes him. She's the first to see Jesus. And then Jesus appears later to the disciples. This happens. This is John 20, verse 19. It was still the first day of the week. That evening, while the disciples were behind closed doors because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities, Jesus came and stood among them. He said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And when the disciples saw the Lord, they were filled with joy. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they aren't forgiven. It's such a, a beautiful, intimate, holy moment between Jesus and the disciples. He shows them his wounds. And he says, it's the, it's the same me. But then we learn in verse 24 that for an unexplained reason, Thomas wasn't with the disciples when Jesus came. Why do you think he wasn't there? They were hiding from the authorities. Why wasn't Thomas there? I wonder if he couldn't face his disappointment. I'm sure that they were all devastated, but I wonder if Thomas was particularly devastated and he couldn't bear to be with them. John 20, 25, the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger in the wounds left by the nails, and put my hand into his side, I won't believe. Maybe this isn't just a scientific challenge, right? Maybe it's an expression of doubt because of the disappointment. The disciples had seen. Jesus showed them the wounds. Jesus had been murdered. Their little community had been in shatters. 
And Thomas wasn't there with Jesus when he died. He wasn't there, and now his closest friends are telling him that he doesn't need to mourn. I mean, wouldn't you, even if bodily resurrection from the dead were a regular occurrence, wouldn't you want to not get your hopes up? Verse 26. After eight days, his disciples were again in a house, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus entered and stood among them. He said, peace be with you. And he turned to Thomas, particularly because he knew he wasn't there last time. He says, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into my side. No more disbelief. Believe. Thomas responded to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Jesus replied, do you believe because you see me? Happy are those who don't see and yet believe. Then Jesus did many other miraculous signs in his disciples' presence, signs that aren't recorded in this scroll. But these things are written so that you will believe Jesus is the Christ, God's Son, and that believing you will have life in his name. Thomas is the first person in the book of John. This is toward the end of the book of John. He's the first person to call Jesus my God. He's Thomas the believer. His belief is pure and immediate upon seeing Jesus. The gospel doesn't say whether he followed through on his demand to put his hand into Jesus' side, into his fingers into the nail holes. It just says that Jesus commands him to believe, and he does. And then Jesus blesses you and me for believing without seeing. So what truth, what's the first of our three truths that we can take from this story? It's we do not need to fear our doubt because we can trust Jesus to show up in the midst of our doubt. He comes without shame or condemnation, only encouragement and opportunity with newness, with an invitation and with a decision to make. No more disbelief. Believe. We often take that as like a stern command, a rebuke. But I wonder if it's actually a comforting word. No more monsters, Thomas. No more hiding. No more isolation. No more disbelief. I give you belief. We don't need to fear our doubt. Our doubt. <clears throat> because Christ is present with us. Thomas had begun to believe the lies that doubt was telling him. And Jesus came to confront, confront those lies. He appeared to Thomas in his resurrected, wounded body. He presents to him those wounds. He says, here I am, Thomas. It's, I'm the same man you've been walking with, and I did exactly what I said you would do, I would do. The time for disbelieving is done. Believe now. Celebrate with me. Trust in who I am right now. Are you afraid of your doubt? Are you afraid of it being exposed to others so you're hiding from them? Are you afraid that it might go deeper than you realize so you demand proofs? Don't be afraid. Jesus is more than big enough for any amount of doubt you might have. Jesus' love is more than big enough for any amount of doubt you might have. Thomas expressed his doubts to his friends when, they confronted, um, when he was confronted by them with the news of Jesus' resurrection. But really, he should have been with them earlier. He became ashamed of his actions and he let it isolate him from his closest community. He let fear build a barrier between himself and his community. 
I think that this isolation is an insidious element of doubt that doesn't often get talked about, or if it does, it's like a side effect, like the suffering uh, is doubt, and on top of that, you're alone. But I wonder if that's not quite right. I wonder if the suffering of doubt is the very fact that we so often hold on to it by ourselves. That we build walls between us and community, that we listen to the lie that doubt tells us about ourselves, especially the lie that we're alone and that we're the only ones that think this or feel this. So the second truth for, our, for us today is that we're not alone in our doubt. And the second doubter is, uh, it's me. <laughs> the Christian tradition that I, wow, that was really delayed. I don't know. The Christian tradition that I grew up in, it emphasized um, the moment of your conversion as the moment of great transformation. So in the moment that you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, um, everything about you would change. And in that moment, you could experience freedom from sins, freedom from doubt, freedom from uncertainty, and experience joy instead of sadness. But what were you supposed to do when you grew up in that tradition? When you grew up believing those things, you don't get to have that moment where you leave behind old ideas and take on new ideas because you grew up with the new ideas already. <laughs> I had the decision to, uh, I, I can experience the, dis um, I did choose to follow Jesus. Uh, I was baptized when I was eight. Um, I feel that I experienced the anointing of the Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit that same summer. But if the emphasis of the Christian experience is transformation, what was I being transformed from and into? Look, I was a, I was a certain little kid. I was like very set in my way. I knew what I knew. I would, yeah. Um, I was also a certain preteen, uh, very by the book, uh, and teenager too. Yes, all the way through, I knew exactly what I believed. Um, I don't have stories for you about like sports or getting in trouble. Uh, I didn't do those things. <laughs> um, and maybe, maybe if I had, I would have better sermon illustrations today. Uh, what I loved was reading and talking about philosophy and theology and engaging with like big ideas, both secular and Christian. Uh, I wasn't afraid of those ideas. And my parents encouraged me to search for truth wherever I could find it, because wherever there is truth, I would find Christ also. So any investigation I could embark on would end with Jesus anyway, so there was no danger. And I operated in that world for a long time. I investigated all kinds of thinkers, uh, and every time I found Jesus, even looking back, like, this wasn't a delusion. I was in love with Jesus, and I found him everywhere. I, I remember one conversation I had with my dad particularly poignantly. <clears throat> I was 14, and we were talking about a postmodern critique of Descartes. Uh, <laughs> that's, I told you, I don't have exciting childhood stories. These are my... Uh, I said, you know, Dad... <clears throat> I, too, don't find Descartes famous, I think, therefore, I am. I don't find it convincing. Uh, look, if you don't know who Descartes is, that's not the point of this story at all. But what you need to know about him is that he said this thing, I think, therefore, I am, because he wanted to approach the world without doubt and try to discover what was at the bottom of it all, the thing that he couldn't doubt in. So I said to my dad, look, I think that as we engage with our thoughts, we find that there are no proof of our existence that we can scrape away the artifice of ourself. <laughs> 14. Um, but I don't, 
I said, I don't think that that means there's nothing beneath that or that life is meaningless. Underneath self, I find Christ. So I would say, Christ, therefore I am. Not even Christ is, therefore I am, just Christ, therefore I am. At 14, I believed that Christ was my foundation, the ground of my very existence, that anything I believed would be formed and shaped by Christ. I knew I could put all my trust in that reality. So when I started experiencing doubt, it wasn't in the world of ideas. In the world of ideas, I was rock solid. What I was not confident in was my bodily, physical identity in Christ. There was a disconnect between my comfort in my ideas and my ability to live according to those ideas. And so I would pray, God, I know you can transform and free me. I've seen it before, so transform and free me. God, I know you love me. You know I love you also. Help me to do it. God, you said I could do all things through you. Help me do these things and stop doing these other things. And I prayed those same prayers for years. I was already a bit of a lonely kid. I liked talking to, about Descartes with my dad. Uh, I couldn't relate to my non-church circles because they cared about different things than me. But I couldn't relate to my church circles either. They also cared about different things than me. I often felt all alone. And in these moments of desperate prayers to God to act in me the way I often saw God acting in people who accepted him as their Lord and Savior and changed everything about them, I felt even more alone. Because in those moments, doubt, which had been a friend to me as I explored the world of ideas, it started to lie to me. It started asking me questions like, are you sure God's listening? Are you sure God wants you to change? Are you sure God cares if you change? Are you sure God is there? Doubt began to erode and decay my trust in the bigness of Jesus. And I would get angry at God. Sometimes I still get angry at God. I wrote, I wrote this in my journal in January. Your patience in the face of our suffering is offensive to me. It's a prayer, but it's an angry prayer. It's a prayer of rage and impatience, and it's an attempt to stave off despair. But I had to learn how to pray these prayers. For a time in college, I stopped praying at all. I stopped praying about anything. I stopped believing that God was a God of transformation, and I limited my understanding of God to just a, a God of experiences. When I, I grew up mostly in this like, kind of American evangelical uh, context like this, um, the God of experience, that's not an emphasized part of who God is there. So I stopped going to church every week except for an occasional chapel service at my school. I certainly did not have a community of Christians edifying and supporting me. I was facing what felt like real big questions and big changes, and I was doing it without a Christian community. I was talking about God, but not with other Christians, not with others who would remind me of who God is and who I was. I had isolated myself from my Christian community, but God made God's self present to me in ways, despite my isolation 
and frustration and avoidance. See, uh, the college I went to is Lutheran and it excels in music. So the result is on Sunday mornings, you can go to chapel and experience one of the best choirs in the entire world sing the Psalms and the Kyrie and, and welcome you to participate in the Eucharist and communion. I had never experienced communion that way before. So even though I'd ceased praying in my mind for transformation, I would take the Eucharist and I experienced the grace of it in a new way through beautiful music God was speaking to me. Uh, have you ever seen a picture of the border wall that ends at the ocean? <laughs> there you go. I had built walls because I thought I could protect myself from the despair and my lack of transformation. So God didn't come to me over land. God came by sea. I discovered joy in singing choral music and in dancing to dubstep. <laughs> right? Uh, Skrillex burst onto the scene in my sophomore year, so by day I was discovering the like, beauty of Shostakovich, whom I'd never experienced before, and by night, Skrillex, whom no one had experienced before. Right? <laughs> I, discovered, I discovered artists I had never heard of, and I began to understand something different about the art that I had seen and dismissed. I dove into the world of theater and dance, and I discovered new things about my voice and my body that I didn't know. I began to experience and move through the world and, and uh, experience other people differently. Look, I tell you this story now, but it's only looking backwards. The whole time I was seeing those new things that God was doing and communicating to me, I felt isolated and alone and like I was away from God. But looking back from this place, from 2018, from Minor Elementary, from Christ City Church, surrounded by my family, by you all, I can say God was with me ministering to me and showing me new things about God, new things about myself and about the world. I didn't know it then. I was in pain then. I was in fear then. I felt alone then. And without that new perspective, I don't think I would have been ready when God started speaking to me in DC and God said, work with CCC. And when God said, trust these people, they're your family. This story isn't about art, it's about me. When I got angry at God for not showing up in the way that I had been taught God would show up and started to doubt that God would ever show up, I let that isolate me. I let that fear rule me. And I stopped talking about it with others who could help me. I stayed put and I closed my eyes and my heart and then God reached me in a new way. God was telling me, you're not alone in your doubt, I'm here. You don't need to be afraid of your doubt, I'm here. Jesus offered Thomas his hands and his side as a way to believe. God presented me with music and art and dance and theater, ways to believe that I didn't know I needed. When we isolate ourselves in our doubt, instead of sharing it with others, we fail to leave room for the experience of God's love. Now, God will love you anyway. God loves you. You'll never be alone. But I could have been relieved of some of the pain of that time if I had shared it with a Christian community that loved me. So are, are you struggling with doubt? How can you live into your not aloneness? You're not alone, so how, like, how can you live into it? Who could you bring your doubt to and tell it about? 
Think about someone. I promise you when you share your doubt, it shrinks. It's not nearly as frightening. Are you, are you someone who once doubted? Share the story of your doubt. Your testimony can be a blessing to others. Let them know they're not the only ones struggling. And if you feel that it's gotten better, let them know it gets better. We don't need to fear our doubt. And we're not alone in our doubt because Jesus shows up in the midst of our doubt. Just maybe not in the way that you think. As I said before, I can only look back at that time from this moment as a story of God's revelation and ministry to me. So for a long time after moving to DC, I didn't understand what had happened or what was happening. Why was there so much pain? When I'm in doubt and fear and isolation at different periods in my life, I don't say to God, wow, you're here. It hurts. But I've seen, since then I've seen God do amazing things with that hurt. My final doubter for us this morning is Peter. Peter was with the disciples the first time Jesus appeared, the time that Thomas missed out on. And he was also one of the first to run to the tomb when Mary and Mary ran to the disciples and told them of the news that Jesus' body was not in the tomb. Peter readily believed that Jesus had been risen, but he was, he was carrying around some shame shame about his behavior after Jesus was arrested. He, like all the disciples, except for John, was not with Jesus through his ordeal. And in fact, as he was outside the palace around a small charcoal fire, he was asked, aren't you one of them? Maybe they could tell because of his skin or his mannerisms or his accent. Maybe something about him screamed Galilean. Or maybe they'd seen him with Jesus. Peter denied it. He was given three opportunities and he denied it three times. He denied it three times despite being forewarned that he was going to. Three times. And now in this room where they're waiting for Jesus and Jesus is showing up to them, were the disciples looking to Peter as a leader during this time while he was carrying around this shame? How must Peter have felt? Well, you know, Jesus is alive, but I don't have any role in this anymore. Did he feel as though he didn't have any right to be among them? What was he thinking? We see this story of Peter in John 21, after the story of Thomas. I'm just going to read the whole thing for you. Later, Jesus himself appeared again to his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And this is how it happened. Simon Peter, Simon Peter, <laughs> Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two other disciples were together. And Simon Peter told them, I'm going fishing. I, I don't know about you, I hear despair in that. I don't know what to do next. I don't know who I am anymore. I'm just going to go fishing. And they said, we'll go with you. They set out in a boat, but throughout the night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. Jesus called to them, kiddos, have you caught anything? 
And they, were, they answered him, no. <laughs> he said, cast your net on the right side and you'll get some. <laughs> and so they did. And there were so many fish they couldn't haul in the net. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. John recognized Jesus. And when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put his clothes back on because he was naked and then he jumped into the water. Uh, it's like, let me put my shoes on and then go swimming. Uh, the other disciples followed in the boat rowing next to him, dragging the net full of fish because they weren't that far from the shore. They're only about 100 yards. And when they landed, they saw a small charcoal fire there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some fish. So Simon Peter got up and pulled the net to shore. It was full of large fish, 153 of them. Yet the net hadn't toured, even with so many fish. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples could bring themselves to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them, and he did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. After they finished eating, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon replied, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus asked a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon replied, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, take care of my sheep. He asked a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was sad that Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And he replied, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Peter, because of what he had done, began to doubt himself and the purposes of God in his life. He let fear and isolation, the, the fear and the isolation of his doubt drive his decisions. He went back to fishing. He felt he had disqualified himself. But here is Jesus who comes to him and brings him in next to a small charcoal fire, cooking fish. And he turns to Peter and he asks a question. He doesn't ask, did you deny me? He doesn't ask, will you deny me again? He doesn't ask, why did you deny me? He doesn't ask, do you believe in me? No, he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter, knowing very well who Jesus is, says, Lord, you already know that I do. And Jesus says, then do what I know you can do. Be who I told you you are. And then he asks him again. And then he asks him one more time, three times total. Even in our weakest moments, when fear and isolation have ravaged us and doubt feels as though it has mastered us, God is there, present to us. God doesn't confront our doubt with the barrage of evidence or a treatise or proofs. God confronts our doubt with God's love. When we doubt, God shows us God's love. When we doubt, God shows us God's love. When we doubt, God shows us love. This is the third truth. Your doubt does not disqualify you. Because our faith, yours and mine, it's not built on a foundation of certainty. It's not even built on a foundation of belief. Our faith is built on a foundation of God's 
unending, eternally faithful love. That's what Jesus is revealing to Peter and to Thomas and to me. I was so focused on my belief in God, I forgot to listen to the truth of God's faithful love to me. I shared part of a journal entry with you, but here's the second half of that journal entry. Your patience in the face of our suffering is offensive to me. Your faithfulness in the midst of our suffering is a balm to me. What I know now that I didn't know in the midst of my doubt is that God loves me in ways I'm not even aware of. And now I want to focus my whole life on Jesus and not just my intellect on Jesus so that I'm experiencing God in as many ways as possible. Look, you may be feeling or thinking something like, Justin, you just told us stories of God showing up in very real ways to these people. God hasn't shown up to me. I want to respond with a quote from Pastor Jonathan Martin. He says, look, I offer no judgment to anyone who is in a place of doubt. I doubt often, and doubt is actually part and parcel of a robust faith. But if you're stuck in it, I'm telling you, you're stuck in your head. You need to get out of your head. And to quote you too, get out of your own way. Get into your body. Get somewhere where you can pray with your body and with your hands and with your feet and with your breath. Get in around some other bodies that are wounded, I promised you. Christ is revealed in them. Doubt is important on the road to faith, but it does not have intrinsic value in and of itself. Doubt postures us to receive the summons of this earthy, sensuous, touchable, tasteable Lord of dirt. Do you need to touch? Stretch out your hand. Do you need to feel? Trace your hands over his wounds. You came looking for evidence. He's going to give you his body instead. Don't let doubt redirect your passion. The answer to our doubt is not to search for certainty. The answer to our doubt is faith. Evidence can help you to create and rest in certainty, but evidence doesn't help you build faith. You love Jesus, and maybe you faced some disappointment, and now you doubt the very thing that brought you life, that love. Now you doubt that that love has life in it, but in that doubt, do not make the mistake of searching for that life, that feeling you had, in certainty. You must fix your eyes on Christ. Search after Christ. Not the comfort or the certainty that you had before the hurt and disappointment. But God is he's present to you here and now. When you feel afraid, God is present and God loves you. When you feel alone, God is present and God loves you. When you feel disqualified, God is present and God loves you. That's the truth that we're called to experience in the midst of our doubt. I'd like to give you an opportunity to meditate on this some, to get out of your head and into your body. So I want to invite JR and the team up. And I'm going to play that song again from the beginning. As I play it, I want to invite you to get into your body. Get out of your head. One way you could do this is you could, you could change your posture in some way, a small way. 
whatever you feel is appropriate. You can step out into the aisle. You can go to the back. You can come up to the front. Go sit in a corner. Come down to this carpet. Or go to the prayer team. Open yourself up to experiencing God's love in a way that you haven't noticed it before. Notice it. Pray with a friend or a partner or a stranger. Pray with one of the prayer counselors. And then after some time, after that song, there will be people here at the front with the body of Christ ready for you to come and touch, come and taste, come and believe. The invitation this morning is this. No more fear, just love. No more isolation, just love. No more doubt, just love. No more disbelief. Believe.